I've maybe talked a little bit too much about Now Magazine on this podcast. I don't know if it's anybody else's favorite topic, but it is mine. Just as a reminder for people who don't live in Toronto, Now Yeah, nobody, ma- nobody listening knows what that is. <laughs> oh, we have a few Toronto people who might. Uh, now Magazine is our equivalent of the Village Voice. It's a very venerable alternative weekly. You can get it for free. You get it on the subway. When it started, it was the lefty rag in town, in addition to providing like events, listings, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it was our village voice, basically. And now it's one of the last alternative weeklies that exists anywhere. And about two years ago, it was bought up by this company called Media Central, which was trying to buy basically all the remaining alternative weeklies in Canada, put them under the same umbrella. Something that has emerged under this new ownership is this section that I'm absolutely obsessed with called uh, Brand Voices. <laughs> Man, there that that is a cursed pairing of words, if ever there was one. <laughs> it's a section that's devoted entirely to sponsored content, which I guess Now Magazine staff writes. And by the way, no shade at all towards any writers or editors at Now Magazine. This is not their fault. You know, this is obviously the decision of someone much higher up. And I'm sorry that they have to write some of this stuff. I noticed it because it's not just in the brand voices section. I went to the film section, as I often do, to see, you know, the latest and greatest in film news. And there was a story just under latest news and features titled, It's Been an Unforgettable Year for the Toronto Film School's New President by Now Staff. And I thought, Now Staff? What, What does that mean? So I click on it, and underneath it says, Sponsored by Toronto Film School. And it's this laudatory profile of this guy who is the president of the Toronto Film School. And it reminded me of that Simpsons episode. The Power Sauce Energy Bar has its own Power Sauce news station. And they're like, this just in. Power Sauce is awesome. <laughs> except, except the Toronto Film School just like bought an article in now magazine for its propaganda and like as long as it says sponsored content underneath technically it's it's okay i guess but it's just there in the film section alongside all the other film journalism but when you go to the brand voices section that's where you get the really great uncut stuff like here's an article called how real estate could become the ideal post-pandemic investment for young millennials (laughs) oh my god i mean that's us right that's you and me we are we are the young millennials and i think i think you'll agree that we're often talking about this how for young millennials such as ourselves real estate really is going to be our ideal post-pandemic investment i don't think you and i have ever once talked about the subject of real estate oh that's right because there's no possible way we will ever afford real (laughs) estate in toronto (laughs) and that's true of us even though we're podcast tycoons How to Experience Hong Kong's Vibrant Art Scene from Home, sponsored by the Hong Kong Tourism Board by Now Staff. I don't know. I find this absolutely tragic. At least they don't force any staff writer to put their own name on this. Because there are are places that do sponsored content. You know, it'll be like, you know, some charter school company or something. And then they'll actually have an in-house staff writer be like... A company attempted a bold experiment in charter schools, and guess what? It worked. (laughs) It's so tragic to see, though, and I understand all the rationale behind 
a magazine like now adopting this model or having this model foisted upon it at least times are tough for alternative media times are tough for creating a sustainable print publication uh that being said i don't i don't think this is the way out of it i think all that this does is just like ruin whatever credibility is still in the magazine it certainly muddies the mission statement of what was once kind of like a leading voice of the Canadian progressive wing. Yeah, it's not a good sign when like even the alt culture becomes gentrified. And that feels very much like what's happening here. Will and I, I think, find ourselves inadvertently doing a lot of cold opens these days. And uh, possibly because we haven't seen each other in person or recorded in person for quite a long time. So much so that I think we've often forgot to actually introduce the show or say who we are. So welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage, and with me as always... Uh, Mr. Will Sloan, thank you. If you're finding us via the Jacobin feed or from anywhere else where you're not seeing the previews to our Patreon episodes, just a quick reminder that plenty more content is available, including one extra episode a week at patreon.com slash Michael and us. Recent episodes include uh, one about Bill Gates, uh, which features my interview with the author and science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, a crossover with the Real Politic podcast, where we discussed uh, the Obama Springsteen podcast, which was a lot of fun. And I'm proud to uh, announce an exciting new collaboration with the Toronto Film School for an episode on uh, the president's exciting first year. <laughs> Could Homer have made it this far without the engineered nutrition of six kinds of apples? No way, Neil. Oh, this just in. Power sauce is amazing. Well, I think we would be remiss uh, if we didn't at least mention what is the most significant news story in Canada right now, uh, particularly since those listening outside of Canada may not have heard about it. Last week saw the discovery of a mass grave in a community in British Columbia. This was a grave containing the remains of 215 children on the grounds of a former residential school. Now, the residential school system, for those who don't know, was set up in the 19th century by the Canadian state with heavy participation from churches. And indigenous children were essentially uh, taken from their parents, kidnapped from their homes and put in these schools, which were I mean, operated for decades and decades. The last last of these schools closed in 1996. 4,100 students died while attending these schools. Uh, a lot of times families weren't even informed what had actually happened to their children. Countless stories of abuse and, and neglect. And a lot of this was examined up close by uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which concluded back in 2015 and which recognized the program, uh, the, the phrase it, it used was uh, cultural genocide, which is a, a perfectly accurate description. You know, indigenous languages were banned in these schools. I mean, if people are familiar with the Australian program, which was very much along the same lines, the program very clearly had genocidal ambition, um, and the people who set it up were pretty clear on that. There is, in fact, a university in downtown Toronto that is still named after one of the architects uh, of this system, Egerton Ryerson. I've had a number of things on my mind since this story broke. I mean, one was one is just the propensity of the liberal class in Canada to kind of, you know, bear witness to this sort of thing, talk about injustice, talk about, you know, now now's the time for action, actions, not words, et cetera, et cetera, and then proceed to give us words rather than action. But I also found myself thinking about the particularly virulent strain of uh, denialism on the right in Canada. The story, I think, has already kind of been forgotten. It didn't, I, I think, elicit the outrage that it should have. But just in uh, December of, uh, of 2020, so just, you know, a few months ago, really, 
Aaron O'Toole, the current leader of the opposition, leader of the Conservative Party. I, I'm not sure exactly when the event occurred. It might have been a few months earlier, but it was discovered actually by my old outfit, Press Progress, which reported on it. Um, so Aaron O'Toole was speaking to members of the uh, Ryerson Conservative Club, so the you know campus conservatives at Ryerson. And you know basically, you know he did what conservatives always do these days, which is try to turn everything into just like a dumb culture war issue. You know, he tried to turn it into like the woke left is trying to cancel history. I mean, if anyone even tangentially familiar with debates about, you know, Confederate statues and things like that is will be more than familiar with this type of uh, language. But in the process, you know, he also said, you know, the architects of these uh, of these schools, you know, were only trying to, you know, provide education and that kind of thing. You know, their their intentions were benign. And it's interesting, it's not just him that said that. Until fairly recently, this discovery may be a turning point in the discourse on the subject. But until quite recently, it was still common to see newspaper op-ed columnists in the major Canadian newspapers basically reiterating this line that while these schools were well-intentioned, they were they were civilizing missions. They were a separate but equal school system. And of course, nobody could have predicted the sexual abuse that would go on, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. I mean, yeah, that's what I was going to say next. I mean, I, you know, back when I was at Press Progress, I used to spend a lot of time covering the Canadian right, and I got very familiar with some of its, you know, I don't want to call them house intellectuals, but, you know, uh, some of its more prominent sort of bloggers and, you know, academics, things like that. And I mean, there was a, you know, there was at least one guy who uh, was a fellow, I think, at one of the major uh, right-wing think tanks, who basically made it his cause to whitewash the residential schools. And he wasn't taking really the line so much that they were unfortunate or something like that. It it was like a harder line than the one Aaron O'Toole took uh, last year. The line was actually they were good. And anything bad you can point out to them like also happened in you know, schools that uh, white children went to or whatever. It's like, oh, well, abuse happened in English public schools and you don't try to cancel English public schools, that kind of thing. I really do think that that attitude still captures uh, what is, you know, still the ambient wisdom among a lot of conservatives in Canada. I think what Aaron O'Toole said, speaking to those conservatives at Ryerson, you know, very much uh, kind of in the vein of conservative culture war stuff that we uh, we hear lots of these days. But I also get the sense that, you know, he wasn't really I don't know how much he really thought about it. Um, I think he was just channeling a sort of, like I said, the ambient wisdom in his wing of politics. Implicit in the thinking of Aaron O'Toole or people like him is the idea that not only is the history and culture and heritage of Canada's First Nations people not something that is important to be preserved, but it's also something that needs to be overcome. It's a detriment to civilization. As with any debate like this, you know, one of the polls in it, you know, very strongly insists that doing things like changing the names of institutions, removing statues, even advancing critical narratives about, you know, founding figures in in the country, whether it's, you know, John A. Macdonald or anyone else, that that amounts to historical erasure. I actually think it's the exact opposite of that. And I say all this, of course, with the caveat that, you know, changing the names of institutions or taking down statues is obviously not the same thing as justice. Those things don't rectify injustice in and of themselves. But the whole idea that accurately quoting things that someone like John A. Macdonald said uh, in the 19th century, quoting the words of Egerton Ryerson, 
you know, putting in context, you know, the words of somebody like Herbert uh, Langevin, who was a public works minister under John A. Macdonald, and who has a very prominent, the Langevin block in Ottawa is one of the most prominent federal government buildings. Langevin was another person who uh, quite explicitly defended the policy of uh, separating Indigenous children from their families. You know, he did this in the House of Commons. It's a matter of public record. It seems to me that the right wing position, all this stuff is actually the one that's about historical erasure. You know, I, I think of something that uh, the late Michael Brooks said, which is that, you know, the left historicizes and the right mythologizes. And I can't think of a better example of that or a better um, illustration of it in practice than this. There's this impulse to treat these statues of founding figures or whatever as these ancient symbols um, that are kind of outside of, you know, historical context or historical analysis. It almost sounds like a, just a, a dumb truism when I say it out loud, but it's the, ex- it's the exact opposite of historical erasure to come to terms with what people like John A. Macdonald, how they thought and what they actually believed. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. But since the reading of the Lord, praise be God. So how are you? I'm fine. No, really. It's been a while since we've talked. Even a pastor needs a pastor. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. So we talked about a wonderful film this week, another one of those ones that was uh, actually a pleasure to watch for change. It's one that I've wanted to do uh, for quite some time, and and Will, uh, Will finally suggested it. And I hopped on the suggestion. Uh, it's the 2017 film First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, I finally suggested it because as our Patreon listeners know, I just watched The Canyons by director Paul Schrader for the fourth time. A movie that's not quite as good as this one. Not quite as good, but definitely the work of the same man. And it kind of got me on a late Schrader kick. The other reason why I wanted to talk about this movie is because it is part of that small genre of movies, a small genre of modern movies that I'm always looking for, which is like the genuinely despairing film about our times. You so rarely see it. You know, movies are made by the privileged. Movies are made to be commercial successes. You rarely see movies that are just so unsentimental about the state we're in. And I always find it genuinely kind of, maybe it sounds counterintuitive, but I always find it genuinely comforting to see a movie like that. I completely agree. And actually, I might have said something along these lines back during one of our Bergman episodes. We did an episode on uh, the Bergman film Winterlight a while back, in which this film is partly based, in fact, and the the plot draws up pretty heavily from Winterlight. But we also did an episode on Bergman's uh, The Magician, I think even further back. And I think I said to you, you know, I feel very much that way about Bergman's work. He's somebody that has this reputation as being, you know, incredibly depressing and, and kind of bleak. And I have never experienced his films that way. Even the bleakest ones, even the ones that are about death and suffering and pain. Films like those, and indeed films like First Reformed, are such a refreshing kind of antidote to the kind of formless positivity you see everywhere and, and the kind of airbrushed positivity you see in a lot of uh, in a lot of films and a lot of culture today. Another reason why I find this film so exciting to watch is articulated by another filmmaker, Alex Ross. Perry. 
In the summer 2018 issue of CinemaScope, he wrote an interview with Schrader and an appreciation of the film, and he wrote, Paul Schrader's first reformed is his fourth film in five years, following the reinvention-spawning masterpiece The Canyons, the failed, compromised 2014 Nicolas Cage thriller Dying of the Light, and the gonzo, goofy Nicolas Cage thriller Dog Eat Dog. These previous films are representative of Schrader progressing from the end of a financially supported, studio-assisted working methodology into a cheaper, bolder, more liberated one, and first reformed as the apex of this new phase in what's now a nearly 50-year career. And how unlikely is that? Watching First Reformed, one sees a theoretical thinker continuing to push the tools of his chosen medium into unexplored places. Nothing would be easier for a filmmaker of Schrader's age and status than to throw up his hands and proclaim that the system has moved away from him. Instead, he learns. He makes movies quicker, cheaper, and with more furious intensity than any of his peers. Imagine Brian De Palma making a movie as cheap and icky as The Canyons. It would be sublime. It will never happen. Finally, he writes, Deliberately at odds with contemporary mainstream style, pacing, and narrative clarity, First Reformed is a young man's film, made with a young man's unbroken confidence and reckless sense of now or never. And that may seem counterintuitive when you watch this movie, which is so so obviously indebted to mid-century arthouse modernism, particularly Dreyer and Bergman. But I do genuinely find it quite an exhilarating film for all the reasons that Alex Ross Perry outlines there. It's, it's such an uncompromising movie. It feels like the film of a free man, to quote Rosalini. <laughs> well, we should talk about the plot a little bit for those unfamiliar with it. I mean, if you have seen uh, the Bergman film Winterlight, you'll be broadly familiar with some of the plot anyway. Ethan Hawke plays a pastor named Ernst Toller, pastor at a small church in, I guess it's rural, uh, rural New York, upstate New York somewhere. Like the pastor in Bergman's Winterlight, we see him speaking to an almost empty congregation at the start of the film. There's almost nobody there in his church. The church is called First Reformed, and it is celebrating its 250th birthday. It's by now primarily a tourist destination. It was once a stop in the Underground Railroad, but it does continue to offer services but it's owned by a megachurch called Abundant Life, which is presided over by a kind of entrepreneurial pastor named Joel Jeffers, played by uh, Cedric the Entertainer. So as in Winterlight, the pastor is approached by a young woman who asks if he can uh, speak to her husband, whose behavior has changed uh, lately. He's grown more despairing in his outlook and has lost his zeal for life. Uh, we learn that he's an activist, an environmental activist, who's recently spent some time in jail, but has been released on compassionate release. When the pastor goes to their home to speak to him, he finds him completely despairing at the state of the world. He, you know, he says the world's changing so fast. A, a third of the natural habitat's been destroyed in our lifetime. The future is going to be one of you know widespread uh, catastrophes. This social structure can't bear multiple crises. He says, "I thought things would change. I thought people would listen." And his wife is pregnant, but he uh, has doubts about bringing a child into the world. The priest tries to comfort him. Ethan Hawke's character tries to comfort him. And we learn about the priest's background during this interaction, too. We learn that he entered the priesthood after losing his son in the Iraq War, which also led to the dissolution of his marriage. And this is a bit of an ambiguous scene. A kind of framing device throughout the film is that the pastor has decided to keep a diary throughout the year. And so he's kind of 
doing a form of personal confession every night in the diary. A nod, by the way, to another influence, Robert Brisson's Diary of a Country Priest. Like in that film, Toller lives an ascetic lifestyle, and he's suffering in both mind and body. There is some suggestion that he may be suffering from cancer, and the diary is where he records his mental deterioration. Not unlike, by the way, another Paul Schrader protagonist, Travis Bickle. Right, and there are some similarities to Taxi Driver as well. What I find interesting about this scene where Toller is trying to uh, to comfort and reassure this disillusioned environmental activist, uh, Michael Mansana is the character's name, is, you know, it's a very ambiguous scene. The pastor calls the exchange exhilarating in his diary. There's something that he finds quite stimulating about trying to argue uh, this case, even though the implication, I think, is that he actually finds himself uh, pretty unconvinced by his own words. And of course, uh, much of the rest of the film is concerned with his own crisis of faith as he comes to see the world in an increasingly similar way to Michael Mansana, this, uh, this environmental activist. So Michael's fervor rubs off on Toller, and in the weeks that follow, it begins to grow in him. Days after the meeting, Michael commits suicide, leaving his wife a widow. Toller discovers the body. His wife also discovers a suicide vest in the garage, which they assume that Michael was planning to use. Well, he was planning to do some kind of, I mean, eco-terrorism or, or something. And the implication is that, you know, he's decided to take his own life without hurting anyone else in the end and does so pretty horrifically asking the priest to come and meet with him in the forest uh, via text message. And then when Toller arrives, he finds that Michael has blown his head off with a shotgun. Michael's will specified that his funeral be held on a toxic waste dump and that a Neil Young song be sung during the service. And this is a symbolic assertion of his environmentalism. And Toller complies with his wishes, but this causes controversy within the church. The owner of the toxic waste site is a financial backer of Abundant Life, the megachurch that owns First Reformed. And he is one of the many local dignitaries who's scheduled to attend First Reformed's 250th anniversary celebration. Cedric the Entertainer, as the big boss, more or less sides with the owner of the toxic waste dump. Yeah, this local industrialist who's funding the church, you know, his demand is, you know, we need to keep politics out of the service. There's an implication that the church was financially struggling uh, some time ago and that this local industrialist kind of bailed it out with huge donations. But very clearly, as Pastor Toll comes to realize, the church is essentially selling this industrialist you know, I mean, it's the equivalent of indulgences, right? Like we learn that one of his companies anyway is a big polluter. It's tied up in all kinds of evil and, and injustice. But, you know, like like a lot of people like that gives money to churches under the auspices of, uh, you know, charity and doing God's work or whatever. And the church is perfectly happy with this arrangement because the person heading it up uh, is much more interested in, in money than in doing any kind of social good. This intensifies Toller's feelings, and it leads to a bit of a collision between him and the Cedric the Entertainer character, Pastor Joel Jeffers. We see on a video monitor just, just a little fragment of Jeffers' theology. I'll quote from him. He says... <laughs> He says, we tend to think that anxiety and worry are simply an indication of how wise we are, yet it is a much better indication of how wicked we are. Fretting arises from our determination to have our own way. 
our Lord never worried and was never anxious because his purpose was to accomplish not his own plans. And then Schrader cuts away. That that's that's the theology of Jeffers. You know, that's obviously Pablum, but I do feel like it does contain a grain of meaning, which which does kind of capture what the philosophy of this church is or has at any rate become among its senior figures, which is, you know, it's theology in the service of just kind of doing whatever you want and feeling pretty good about it. There's a remarkable scene with a prayer circle where you see how uh, how unhelpful the church actually is in, in helping people find answers unless they were kind of already happy uh, already or unless things were already going pretty well. Um, so it's this prayer circle that Pastor Toller attends where a group of young people are speaking. And the first guy who speaks, he says something to the effect of, you know, if there is such a thing as a prescription happy pill, you know, it would have the wor- it would have the letters JC on the bottle. And he just starts talking about how, you know, since his uh, conversion, uh, his relationships are good. He got a raise recently. Uh, so things seem to be going pretty well for him. Uh, but then the next person who speaks is a young woman whose incredibly devout father has just been laid off from his job. You know, and she's she's obviously perplexed at how this can be. And the guy that's running the prayer circle is completely unable to answer her question. So tries to outsource the question to Pastor Toller, who begins to try to offer an explanation in which he communicates something of his own philosophy. You know, he begins to argue that Christian living and money have absolutely nothing to do with one another. He tries to argue, uh, he begins to argue for some kind of vision of universal justice. He talks about, he says something to the effect of, you know, Christ's teachings never had an American flag on it. You know, there was no money involved, something like that. He's then uh, interrupted with an intervention from a third young person who kind of goes like full MAGA on him. And his own belief really just seems uh, kind of an extension of right-wing politics. I feel like this is a bit of a hint that you know, despite the industrialist demands to, you know, keep politics out of this church service, you know, the church just by virtue of having, you know, this wealthy patron, practically speaking, has right-wing politics anyway, because it talks endlessly about doing social good. But as Pastor Toller reminds his boss, you know, we do absolutely nothing to protect the world in which we're living. And Pastor Jeffers, the boss, his theology seems to be one of self-actualization. He seems to be the Tony Robbins of the church. You know, you, you deserve success and anxiety isn't going to help you. That's right. And actually, that's another thing that the uh, the third guy in the prayer circle says. He's like, you know, he actually takes great umbrage with uh, Pastor Toller's suggestion that, you know, uh, uh, the Christian life ha- uh, has nothing to do with money or at least exists independently for money. He angrily says, so, you know, your argument is that Christians are losers. They shouldn't be successful. You get the sense that uh, a kind of prosperity gospel has uh, has really conquered this church. It's also a key decision that Schrader made that the church was once a stop on the Underground Railroad. That's right. The church has a radical heritage. And now that's embalmed forever, and the glow of it will always be on the church no matter what happens. That's right. We learn that the church is is kind of called by the higher-ups at, you know, head office. They call it quite condescendingly the souvenir shop. And the corporate pastor, played by Cedric the Entertainer, uh, thinks about it as a museum. That's the word uh, he uses. And that comes out during a sort of confrontation between Toller and Jeffers in Jeffers' office. This scene was absolutely extraordinary. Toller more or less begs Jeffers to let the church become a voice in the climate crisis. He says, I think this is an issue where the church can lead, but we say nothing. 
The U.S. Congress denies climate change. We know what big business speaks, but who has spoken for God? And Jeffers has sort of a two-pronged attack on this. <laughs> on the one hand, he says, listen, we don't really know God's will. Maybe environmental collapse is God's will. Who's to say? The other response is incredible because he accuses Pastor Toller of being, he says, you know, you spend, you're always in the garden. Even Jesus wasn't in the garden all the time. And then he lists off the other places where Jesus spent his time. And it's like, look, he was in, he was in, he was in the market. Yeah, he was in the market. That's one of the things that he, that he singles out. But you spend all your time in the garden. Um, so yeah, it's, it's this two pronged approach of on the one hand, advocating a sort of nihilism. It's like, well, we don't really know what God's will is. Maybe it is God's will for us to make the planet uninhabitable. But then on the other hand, he actually accuses Pastor Toller of being like too Christ-like. <laughs> he's too he's too socially concerned and he should be more acquisitive and more self-interested because that's what God actually expects. And actually the other thing that he does, he says, you're a minister at a tourist church that no one attends. Do you have any idea what it takes to do God's work? To maintain a mission of this size, the staffing, the outreach, the amount of people that we touch every day. And he's not exactly wrong when he says that. I mean, this industrialist, I guess, did help bail the church out of some financial difficulty at, at some point. But I mean, to what end? To what end? Well, you know, it's like the, it's like what we were saying about Now Magazine at the at the beginning of the episode. It's like, sure, sure, it exists, but but does it? Yeah, I mean, the the number of scenes in this film where you kind of see people going through the motions, where you kind of see people practicing the liturgy and stuff like that, and this is borrowed, you know, directly from Winterlight as well. Uh, but it's clear that very few people involved, apart from maybe Pastor Toller, are actually thinking about kind of the implications of any of this or what it means. The scene with Michael's funeral, uh, which is such a, an incredibly powerful and ominous but moving scene, we see this choir from the church come and perform the song. The song lyrics are a bit didactic, but performed against the backdrop of this toxic waste dump as Michael's ashes are sprinkled, it's pretty moving nonetheless. Regardless, the parish choir, uh, they don't seem particularly, I mean, maybe I'm over-interpreting this scene, but we, you know, we see them rehearse earlier and they don't actually seem particularly interested. They seem fairly distracted. The church just sort of happens to be where they are. It's not really any kind of moral beacon star in their life, or that's what it's seems to me. And the film, I think, is replete with images like that, of all of this grand architecture erected around this church. But at the end of the day, the whole thing is just undergirded by corporate blood money. And the people running the church, at least, think primarily in terms of, you know, money and entrepreneurialism and kind of expanding the church as a business rather than expanding it as any kind of moral or social enterprise. Jesus didn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. Mm -hmm. He wants our commitment and our obedience. And what of his creation? The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead, but, but they say nothing. The, the US Congress still denies climate change? Where were we when these people were elected? It builds to an ambiguous ending where Toller has basically finally taken Michael's mission, his, his thwarted or aborted mission, as his own. He straps a suicide vest to himself and is going to destroy First Reformed Church on the day of its 250th anniversary celebration. However, he bails on the plan when Michael's wife, the Amanda Seyfried character, and 
I guess the kind of object of his unrequited love appears at the church, despite him telling her not to. So instead, instead of wearing the suicide vest, he decides to commit suicide. He wraps himself in barbed wire, and just as he's about to basically drink Drano, the Amanda Seyfried character walks in. They share a kiss, and the movie goes to black. I'm struck that you describe this as an ambiguous ending, because I don't think it's ambiguous at all. I think the message of the film is very clear, um, and I think it's with some caveats, a pretty uplifting one, despite the fact that the film is bleak from start to finish. It's uplifting, I guess, that he's found love, um, but it's not uplifting that every other problem is still there. I think it's an affirmative conclusion to the film, if nothing else, because the, the two kind of poles of belief that have existed hitherto in the world of the film are this kind of nihilistic positivity where, you know, you don't even really acknowledge the state of the world. You don't really engage with it, but you use religious belief as kind of a shield. And as a means of justifying whatever you want to do, you know, regardless of how greedy and acquisitive and destructive it is, you know, that's kind of pole number one represented by the leadership of this church in partnership with the industrialist. But then the, the second pole is the one represented by Michael, who takes his own life, uh, which is this one of deep acknowledgement uh, with the state of the world, you know, the, the bleakness of everything, but an outlook that leads to his, uh, his self-destruction. I mean, he ceases to be able to live in the world at all. He adopts his own kind of nihilistic outlook. You know, he doesn't even want to have a child. He doesn't want to bring life into the world. There's a B story, I suppose, which we didn't mention, which I think is a uh, is germane here, which is that Pastor Toller, like the pastor in Winterlight, you know, repeatedly spurns the affections of a, a woman who works at the church. And there's the there's an implication that they've had some kind of affair or something, but which he hasn't wanted to proceed with. So his life has also been one of kind of asceticism and self-denial. He's a lot more like Michael Mansana, the environmental activist who uh, commits suicide than it seems at the start of the film. Which is why I think it's so easy for him to absorb Michael's outlook and very nearly take it to the same conclusion. I mean, what he's initially planning to do, which is blow himself up, is exactly what Michael was going to do. But at the end of the film, he decides to choose a third option, which is to try to exist in the world in full knowledge of what the world is. Um, and it's funny, you know, I, we talked about that scene early in the movie where he's talking to Michael and he describes the, uh, the exchange as exhilarating but seems unconvinced by his words. But I, but I went back to that scene uh, after the end of the film and watched it again and I actually think the advice he gives uh, which I think he finds his own words unconvincing at the time it's it's not it's not bad advice and I do sort of feel like the message of the film the ultimate message is captured is captured here he says courage is the solution to despair reason provides no answers wisdom is holding hope and despair in our minds simultaneously holding these two ideas in our heads is life itself um, and that's a principle that he's been able to speak throughout the film, but he hasn't been able to live in accordance with that principle. He just sinks deeper into despair. And it's only through human contact, the, the contact that he's denied himself, contact with Mary, the character played by Amanda Seyfried, that he's able to reestablish his connection with the world and feel at least some warmth towards it. And as I said, I think, you know, even though the film is incredibly bleak from start to finish, I and mean, even the even the color palette is, you know, dark and it's all blacks and grays and, you know, the funeral takes place next to this toxic waste dump. The sky looks polluted. Ultimately, I don't think this is that ambiguous an ending at all. And ultimately, I don't think it's a bleak ending. I think it's a, a, a fairly uh, affirming one. All right, fair enough. You've convinced me. <laughs> Courage is the solution to despair. Reason provides no answers. We can't know what, what the future will bring. We have to choose despite uncertainty. Wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our mind simultaneously. Hope 
in despair. A life without despair is a life without hope. Holding these two ideas in our head is life itself. You know, Schrader was a film critic before he was a filmmaker. He was a disciple of Pauline Kael's, but his taste in film was quite different than hers. His big achievement as a film critic was a book called Transcendental Style in Cinema, which was published in 1972, where he was trying to he was trying to define a particular tendency in art house film, one that spanned from Ozu to Dreyer to Brisson. Uh, and, and basically no one else like like it, it was so rigorous that basically it was a style that only encompassed three that only encompassed three people. He said he said that to the transcendental artist, the artist who's who's trying to convey the transcendent through film, things like plot and acting and characterization and camera work, music, dialogue, editing. These are elements that the artist uses to help viewers understand or you know kind of spoon feed to them the events on screen he wrote in films of transcendental style these elements are reduced to stasis transcendental style stylizes reality by eliminating or nearly eliminating those elements which are primarily expressive of human experience thereby robbing the conventional interpretations of reality of their relevance and power Transcendental style, like the church mass, transforms experience into a repeatable ritual, which can be repeatedly transcended. So, you know, think of the filmmakers that qualify under his rubric. They're filmmakers who sort of create a sense of the everyday with a style that is as far from ostentatious as possible, very cold, very factual, almost prosaic at times. And then they introduce an element that disrupts the everyday. And through their editing, through their camera work, they sort of rely on the audience to come forward to the film. The audience is granted an enormous amount of freedom to interpret what happens in the film. Anyway, that's barely related to the point that I really wanted to bring up, which is, as a filmmaker, Schrader didn't want to make really the films that he wrote about when he was a critic. He was more attracted to the profane than the sacred. You know, there's there's a passage in this interview that he did with Alex Ross Perry in 2018, where Perry says, By aesthetic design, First Reformed is inspired by a certain type of cinema, yet it is very much a contemporary film. You could have decided that your way to make this style of film was as a period piece, but you took a style and made something startlingly modern. And Schrader replied, I'm not that much interested in history. I'm much more interested in what people have on their minds at the moment. What is this peculiar place we're living in now? So it would never have occurred to me to do a historical piece. He goes on to talk about how the roots of making First Reformed were having dinner with the director of a popular arthouse movie of recent years called Ida, which was also very influenced by mid-century European arthouse cinema. And talking to that director, he found that there, there's a way to make a film like that in sort of a financially responsible way in the current film marketplace. And he realized, this is my time, this is my chance to make a film like this. I think First Reformed is very exciting for the way that it sort of synthesizes this sort of mid-century style with very present tense concerns. My friend Ethan Vestby was pointing out recently on Twitter that you look at most of the really big deal American film directors, your Scorsese's, your Paul Thomas Anderson's, your Quentin Tarantino's, your Coen brothers, they're all making period pieces now, overwhelmingly. That's not a knock on those films, but that's just not what they're trying to do. And, you know, a lot of those filmmakers, somebody like Tarantino is obviously very interested in replicating forms and aesthetics and styles that were popular in cinema in decades past, but largely to illuminate the past. 
And Schrader is one of the few people at his level who I think tried to do that to really illuminate the current moment. Well, it's funny. I hadn't actually uh, thought about it in those terms. It's good to have some uh, context for this movie kind of as cinema. This is my second time seeing the film, you know, enjoyed it thoroughly both times. But I mostly thought about just, you know, the, the ways, the simple ways in which it was like other films I enjoy. And the way that the message of the film, uh, at least as I understand it, basically sums up my own political outlook, you know, even though my own version of it is a, is a secular and non-religious one. You know, I guess there's a risk this will sound overly earnest or, or twee. But what I understand the basic moral message of the film to be, which is, you know, the, 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 the challenge of being in the world is to, is to hold contradictory visions of it together simultaneously. You have to be able to hold together full recognition of just how bleak and awful the world is, whether it comes to climate change or, or anything else. You have to hold that together with the impulse to change those things and to join with other people to change those things. I think it's a constant challenge, but I think it's an infinitely better option than succumbing to blind greed on the one hand or nihilism on the other. Protect the wild, tomorrow's child. Protect the land from the greed of man. Take out the dams, stand up to oil. Protect the plants and renew the soil. Who's gonna stand up and save the earth? Who's gonna say that she's had enough? Who's gonna take on the big machine? Who's gonna stand up and save the earth? This all starts with you and me. And fossil fuels draw the line before we build one more pipeline and fracking now let's save the water and build a life for our sons and daughters who's gonna stand up and save the earth who's gonna say that she's had enough Who's gonna take on the big machine? Who's gonna stand up and save the earth? This all starts with you and me.